Welcome to the Hunters and Closers podcast. I'm Dana Haggard, and I'm here to help you fill your pipeline, decrease your time to close, and crush your sales quotas. Welcome to Hunters and Closers podcast. I'm Dana Haggard. Today I'm joined with Don Cash, the Vice President of Inside Global Sales uh, at BMC Software. Excited to have you, Don. You've got a fantastic background, lots of great experience. Many people look up to you, you know, based on what you've been able to accomplish throughout, throughout your career. So excited to have you and thank you for joining. Thank you. And Cash is my last name. It's a great sales, <laughs> sales name, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Love pulling up in the driveway this morning and seeing the, 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 you know, the license plate on the car, MoCash. And it's awesome. You can play it a lot. Yeah, that's that a double entendre because uh, my wife's name is Monette and it's her car, so oh. I call her Mo, and then last name is Cash. So Mo Cash, when it's put together, kind of brings the wrong connotation by people that see you driving a red sports car. So no, I love <laughs> it's, it. It's all good. It's great. Well, today we're going to have a great conversation about sales, about hunting and closing deals. Uh, and just to begin with, I wanted to get your understanding. When you hear the, the two words, hunters and closers, what comes to mind? What does that mean to you? It's the lifeblood of any company. I mean, nothing happens until you bring revenue in the door and the people are on the front lines that are closing deals and uh, bringing in revenue to keep everybody else's paychecks flowing is the hunters and the closers. So they're the lifeblood of, of any given company. Absolutely. I love that. In your career, you've had you know, the unique distinction of hitting your annual number every single year. I love reading this. Uh, this is you know, something that many people don't even come close to accomplishing. What would you say is the one reason, if you could pinpoint it to just one specific reason, what's the one reason that has helped you to achieve this and why some people struggle doing this on an annual basis? Well, first of all, I'll, I'll be perfectly candid. I don't accept a number unless I can back into it um, with math. So I don't just accept a huge growth number without making sure that I've got the resources and the mathematics behind it, right? It, it's a very simple equation. Uh, this is our average sales cycle. Here's our average, um, uh, average sales price. Here's the number of reps we have. Here's how much money we spend in marketing to bring in this many inbound leads. This is the coverage and pipeline to get to those deals. I mean, it's all math-based. So I don't sign up for a quota unless I know that I've got all the resources I need, the marketing coverage, the PG coverage, the salespeople, in order to hit that number. So it's a, it's a negotiation sometimes back and forth. I'm always willing to sign up for the number if I get the appropriate resources to get me there. But I'm not going to sign up for a pie-in-the-sky number that's just based on you know, a hope cast of let's set the bar high and see what we can do. It, it, i got to back into it logically. So when you were an individual contributor, did you ever have any years where you were given a number that didn't make sense. And what advice would you give to sales representatives that may be given a pie-in-the-sky number? Yeah, that's. I would do the same thing that I do as a manager. I do that as a sales, a sales rep as well. And um, I have sales reps that do that. They say, how can you increase my quota by 35% this year when, you know, and, and they back into it. And we say, you know, we have to basically come down and say, look, here's the number of accounts you have. Here's what the average... Uh, deals, here's what your pipeline looks like, and, and we have to kind of come to terms as to why we think that's a reasonable number. But I would push back as a sales rep just as much as I do as a manager to make sure that it's a quota that's completely, you know, that there's a plan for getting to quota. That's great. Uh, were there ever any years where you, 
you fell behind in maybe the first quarter, second quarter, and had you know a lot to make up at the end of the year? And if so, what did you do to make up for that? Yeah, so the, you know the, you've got the smaller transactions that are you know high volume transactions, smaller deal sizes. You have to keep those coming in on a consistent basis, and you can kind of almost bank on those being a certain amount. And the big X factor in any quota in any quarter or given fiscal year. Uh, attainment is the elephant, so the big size deals. So it really comes down to making sure you understand how many of the large deals that you have and then what is your your execution plan to make sure that those deals come in the door. And it's got to be perfect execution. And then bringing in the resources, either from an executive sponsorship from the, the C-level suite or whatever. I mean, we have to put a whole team of people from our uh, development, our sales engineering. I mean, but everything has to go because when you if you lose a million dollar deal, that has a material impact on whether you hit your quota or not versus losing a bunch of cats and dogs at 50 to 100k. So it's a, those are the ones that you lose one or two of those. You can backfill. You can you can you can find a plan to backfill those. But you lose a million dollar plus deal, and it's very difficult to backfill those. So my strategy was always making sure that I had perfect execution on the plan to close the big the big deals. So let me ask a follow-up question to that. Uh, oftentimes, sales representatives, salespeople like to sandbag, if you will, not really let everybody know what the real size of an opportunity is. Do you prefer that they hold back that information because it's not yet set in stone that it could be a million-dollar deal, or do you prefer that they come forward up front and say there's a possibility here and I'd like you to get involved. Yeah, you you can win a deal on your own. You just never want to lose a deal on your own. Mm-hmm. So if you have a big deal and you lose it because you didn't let people know about the potential size of the opportunity and you didn't get the resources that were required to make sure that we were in a position to win the deal, that's not a good thing. So absolutely being forthright with what the deal is today and what it could be to make sure that you get all the proper resources applied to the deal so that we can bring it in together as a team. Again, you never want to lose the deal by yourself. Yeah, that's great, great insight. As you look at uh, kind of the ratio of filling uh, your pipeline, how, how much of that pipeline, in your opinion, should be those smaller, maybe transactional, you know that they're going to come in type deals, to the mid-sized deals, to elephants? Yeah, it depends on any business that you're in, whatever your market is and your addressable market share and what the average has been. But, you know, it, it's been different mix with the different product sets that I sell. So a complete SaaS-based solution sell, like I had at Omniture and Adobe, it was a lot of um, average-sized deals where we do anywhere from 18 to 20 transactions per quarter per rep. And so the average sales price is anywhere from 50 to 75 k you know, in annual um, transaction value, ATV. And so those are more um, more linear. You know, you can definitely start to plan on how many deals need to come in by month one, month two, and then by month three with any given quarter. And you can start to project out and get some linearity in your, your forecast and in your pro- production. But deals where you have potentially large size transactions like we have right now, um, that that becomes a little lumpy. It can become lumpy. So you have to really start to there's and and there's some quarters that based on the size of the big deals, you know, it's not a 25 percent quarter one, 25 percent quarter two. It's definitely back um, year end loaded, and um, and then it depends on where your biggest deals are. So I will never call a number that I know I can't hit. And it's it's always better to undercommit and overdeliver than it is to overcommit and underdeliver. So. It's one of those things where you know you take a look at your deals. 
Um, we always apply the three whys for forecasting, and that's a, that's a way that we, um, you know, we, we value whether the deal is going to happen or not. The three whys are why buy anything, so why is this customer going to buy any solution? Then why are they going to buy it from me? What's the answers for that? And then why are they going to buy it this quarter? If you don't have those three whys on every one of your deals as a way to, you know, to, to weed them out, uh, so you can apply, you've only got so many cycles that you can spend on deals in any given quarter. So you just want to make sure you're applying your time and resources to the ones that have the best chance of, of closing. So the three whys has been a really good way for us to, uh, to make sure our deals are, are solid for that, that quarter so we can apply the resources for those deals. <clears throat> do, do your managers, your frontline managers then go through and talk about the three whys of every single deal? Is that uploaded and... Oh yeah, it's it's, it's very much part of our sales process, and and um, it's built into a cadence. And even the forecasting process through the quarter, by you know every single week, there's a there's a, a stage that the deals have to be in, that you you have to have a commitment by ex, you know ex, this particular time of the quarter to cover your commit. We do the low gut high, um, and then um, you know we took it all. We we, we call it a um, Anyway, there's a process that we use that keeps us very, very fundamentally scientific about the way we forecast so that we forecast accuracy is, a, is the biggest challenge, I think, for, for, for managers in general and companies in general. And so we've got it down to a process that keeps it really, relatively accurate. Um, there's always the chance that that big deal slips in the last, last couple hours of any given quarter. But if, you're done, if you've done all the homework and you've done things up, you know, right, the chances of mitigating that risk is, is pretty good. Great. So you've, you've managed a lot of different account development teams in your past. Uh, right now, BMC Software, you've got how, how many employees under you that report in your organization? A little under 200. Okay. Yeah. Five, six different locations, is that right? There's six, yeah, six different locations. Um, because we're inside sales, we're, we're based on, you know, hubs of center, centers of excellence by geographic regions. So the Asia Pacific is covered out of Singapore. We have a group of people there with all the different languages that support Asia-Pacific type of countries. And then in uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina, we've got uh, Latin American coverage, which is mainly Portuguese and Spanish-speaking, but then they, they cover all the Latin American countries. North America and Canada is covered out of our Cary, North Carolina office. And then we also have another group in Tampa that through an acquisition, we have a team down there in Tampa, Florida. Um, and then uh, our EMEA coverage, or, you know, um, Europe, Middle East, and Africa is covered out of our Dublin office, and, and we've got all the different languages that cover that out of, of Dublin, Ireland. How do you, with all those different, you know, diverse languages and cultures and individuals, how do you get everybody motivated and on the same team toward, you know, working towards the same goal? Yeah, and, and that's a good question. First of all, the profile of people that we hire, it doesn't differ from any region that we're hiring for, and that's one, been one of the things that I've, I did when I first joined the company, I had to double, almost triple the size of the company or my organization when I joined. And I found that every hiring manager had their own process for how they interviewed and what they were looking for and how they would hire, what the profile even looked like. So I said, let's start, let's start over. We want to make sure that every single person we hire, regardless of what office they're in, has very, very specific sales traits that have been known to, be, to produce good salespeople. 
And so let's test for that. Let's, let's actually set up a series of questions in our interviews and let's set up our interviews the same. Let's document them the same. So in theory, every single interview, regardless of what country we were doing the interviews with, it was the same set of questions, the same profile we were looking for, and then the documentation was the same as we did that. And I actually learned that in this book right here, um, the sales acceleration formula. It's, it's basically trying to take out the, the, the gut in, in hiring and try and make it a, a more scientific and in, in putting together a list of attributes that are very common in successful salespeople and then actually applying that to the interview process. So if you say, um, you know, coachable is a trait that is, is, is in every good salesperson is that they're coachable. Well, how do you test for coachability in an interview? So we put together a series of questions and a process in their interviews that te tests for coachability and we then score based on that. And that just gave us a baseline to make sure that we're hiring consistently around the globe for the same profile, the same set of questions, the same sales traits, and that really helped a lot. Um, but one of the things that we look for is people that are, are self-motivated. So when you say, how do you keep people motivated? We try and find people that are pretty self-motivated. They consider their, their business as if they're the CEO of their territory, of their own personal business. And whether their manager is there or if they're at sales uh, conference or on personal time off, it doesn't matter. They still operate the same way. So, you know, somebody that is um, self-motivated is a key factor as well. That's great. So you really just standardized the whole hiring process. When you did that, did you see uh, you know, change in the, the vibe there on the teams? And you know, what were some of the direct results other than just... Oh, yeah, completely. And, and a lot of this is, is lessons that I've learned. Like when um, Omniture got acquired by Adobe, mm -hmm. uh, they asked me to take over all the inside sales for Adobe and all their other business units. And so I inherited a team in San Francisco, 25 guys, and 25 people. I say guys is, is a, you know, it's generic term, it's generic term for, <laughs> for reps. But the, the net is um, they had a comp plan that was put in place that didn't, you know, they, they didn't get paid after they hit their quota. And so it basically just bred this uh, whole system of mediocre performance. And I walked into the office to do, the, the, you know, to catch up and find out who the team was and do personal interviews with everyone. They're playing hockey sack in the corner. They're watching ESPN on their computers. Or One guy was, had Hulu on and was watching TV. And he's like, dude, I already made my number for the, for the month. And it was two weeks in. And so that just, you know, so you had to really go in and identify what the culture is, what it is that, you know, needs to be fixed. And, um, you know, it's like cancer. You can either cure it or you can cut it out, and you have to determine if you've got enough time to do the curing. That's great. Looking back on your, uh, your storied and successful career, if you could go back to a time when you were an individual contributor uh, and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, man, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, I think that um, the advice I would give is... Um, don't let fear keep you from just pushing forward. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to establish in my, in my groups is this feeling of um, there's no judgment. It's a welcome environment. We're free to make mistakes. In fact, we laugh about our mistakes as much as anybody. And um, it, just, it becomes just a, an environment that it's okay to make mistakes, but you just got to get on the phone. And so we actually, in week one of somebody being hired, 
They don't know the products. They don't know the customer. They don't know a lot of things. But we get them on the phones right away because it doesn't matter if you don't know all that. You just have to start having conversations. That's how you learn. And if I'd give advice to myself, I would have picked up the phone a hell of a lot more and just dialed and dialed and talked to people and then say, be honest and say, you know what, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to find out and I'm going to call you back. But you now have something started. And I was too worried about having all the product knowledge and having all of the industry background and having everything just perfectly dialed in so that when I got somebody on the phone, I had the best chance of, of answering their questions. I think that's, that was a mistake. And I've tried to create a culture within our organization to, to make it so that they can just feel free to pick up the phone. And you're going to make mistakes, right? But it's all right. You learn from that. Now, if you're making the same mistakes over and over again, then that's a problem. We but, need to talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's great. That's great advice. So talking about leadership now, much of your sales leadership has been focused on building and managing inside sales teams. How do you, uh, how do you help them achieve success and reach new heights that they've never reached before? How do you do that as a, as a manager, especially looking at now five, six different countries and teams that you're managing? Yeah, that's, um, that's a really good question, and, and um, it certainly is an area that I focus a lot on is, is I feel like my job as a manager is hiring good people and then removing roadblocks so they can be successful, and then I'm always looking to develop people in their careers, and so giving somebody, especially the millennials that we're, that we're dealing with now, they want to move the dial. They want to make a difference. They want to know that this is a career and that we're investing in their enablement in their career path. And so if you show that part of it and then let them go and help them remove roadblocks so they can be successful, it's amazing how that, that can just you know, springboard off of each other and, and the environment in the office. And when people feel success, they're more successful. And so you want to make sure that they're always feeling like they're making progress and they're attaining their objectives and meeting their goals and that they have a career path ahead of them and and uh, that's really important. You talk about hiring and I know you talked about standardizing that. Do you, in that process, are you looking for individuals that have more of a skill set that is already you know accomplished and they have made great achievements or are you looking more for someone who is moldable to become who you would prefer them to be on your teams? Yeah, number one thing I look for is work ethic. I'll hire a a farm kid out of Idaho any day because I can teach them the products. I can teach them. They may not be the smoothest on the phone. They might not have the perfect elevator pitches, but they will pick up the phone and they will grind and they will call and they will put in the work and the effort. The, the, the thing that I hate the most is that, ter- that term, I would rather work smart than work hard. That drives me crazy. Just imagine what could be accomplished if you did both, right? But I will always take work ethic over anything else. And then somebody that's coachable as well. That's a very high trait that we look for in the interview process is people that have a good work ethic and are coachable for sure. I remember attending a conference that you spoke at maybe a year or so ago and you said that same same phrase, you know, what what do you think we could accomplish if we worked both smart and hard? And, you know, it's something that some people don't tend to think about these days. But, yeah, let's do both, right? Yeah, right. Uh, so with, today we're seeing, you know, like you talked about, the large influx of millennials. They work different, right? They have different things uh, that, um, you know, different ways that they work, different ways that they like to be rewarded. What have you found to be challenging, you know, in managing these millennials today? You know, I think um, the only challenge that I have is in 
putting them in a box with preconceived notion of what a millennial is. And, and I think that all of that is just a bunch of hogwash. If you, you know, you, the one thing that's really good about today's work environments is that we have open seating, right? And everybody is kind of cross, you know, communicating and, and the cross communication with the team just elevates the entire team. And I've also found that if somebody's not carrying their weight, the, the peer pressure from their peers that know that they're not doing what they need to be doing and it's dragging them down, there's, there's, there's something really cool about being in a, a centralized office because the level of ramping goes up in, infinitely. Um, you know, we get these new reps that are in the field that are paid twice as much as an inside sales rep, so my guys can sell all day around them because they don't have people to reach out to and ask questions to. They don't hear somebody else's objection handling. They don't hear somebody else's elevator pitch or closing um, where if you're in an office with a bunch of people, you hear the best of the best. And we actually encourage that. We put together through exec vision, um, we, we capture the calls and then do call recording and, and reviews. And then everybody submits their best calls for the week and then their worst calls for the week. Mm. And then we as a group kind of evaluate. And everybody wants to have their calls evaluated because it's their, you know, it's their badge of honor. Like, sure. I nailed this call and I want, I want people to see it. Or, oh my gosh, I stepped all over myself. I, looked, I was horrible. And we all laugh, right? Because all of us have had those calls as well or had somebody on the, on the other line that just goes ballistic, right? <laughs> but you got to laugh at those things or otherwise you, you go crazy. But we just created this safe environment within our company that we allow each other to learn and to progress. And that's the, the coolest thing about millennials is that open workspace environment is really conducive to very fast growth in their careers and their development, their skill sets. I mean, I can ramp somebody now in, in weeks, not months, um, which is really, really awesome. That's great. How have you evolved as a sales leader over your career? What, you know, what has changed from day one in, in your style of leadership to today? Yeah, you know, honestly, I would say that as soon as I stopped thinking about what's best for Don Cash and how my career was going to benefit or my compensation or my commission check, I, you know, as soon as I got out of that mode and started thinking about my managers, how can I make sure that they're, you know, being as effective as possible, they're being successful as possible, they're making as much money as possible, and then the reps, the same thing. As soon as I start thinking about how can I develop this person in their career, help them make more money than they've ever made before, help, you know, and as I'm not thinking about Don Cash, I'm thinking about my team. That was the switch for me that made the big difference because when you're doing that type of stuff, your career is taken care of. Your, your success is based on their success and vice versa, right? So if you hire bad people and you don't develop them, you don't create opportunities, it's going to reflect in your performance as well. Because ultimately, that's my biggest skill, uh, Dana, is that, you know, I know how to recognize and develop talent and remove roadblocks and help people be successful. And it's just such a cool aspect of where I'm sitting right now in seeing kids that came right out of college and we're in 35K jobs and are now running all of Asia Pacific for these big B2B tech companies making you know seven figures a year. And they will still call me up and thank me for giving them a chance and recognizing them and helping them. But you recognize talent and you develop it and you advance it, you promote them, you, you make sure that you, you put them above you. And I've always told these guys, I will be working for you someday, I promise you. I mean, your level of talent way exceeds mine. I'm completely overrated. The one thing I do know how to do, though, is recognize talent, and you're one of them. So that's, 
that's where my passion comes from is seeing the people that I work with develop into in their professions or their careers and to, and to get new big advances and opportunities and to see them grow. I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. That's awesome. It is exhilarating. That's awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about personal accomplishments and achievements. Uh, you shared with me that you're going to be leaving in a couple of weeks here to go climb your fifth of the seventh summits. Yeah. Yeah, so I've, I'm trying to climb the seven summits. People that don't know what that is, it's of all the seven continents, the highest peak in each of the seven continents, with Asia um, and Mount Everest being the tallest, obviously. Sure. Everybody knows Mount Everest, but in each continent, there's a tall mountain. So I'm leaving in uh, less than a week to Denali, which is in Alaska. It used to be called Mount McKinley. It's 20,323 uh, feet. Um, but it's 40 below. It's a brutal mountain, and there's a lot, you know, less than 50% success rate. Anyway, so I just had a bucket list of things that I've always wanted to do, and it, it came about by reading Dick Bass's book, The Seven Summits. He was the first one that coined that term and then put that into, into play. He wrote a book about it in the 80s. I read that book and just fell in love with it. It just became a dream that I wanted to pursue. But to go climb mountains takes money and time, and, and um, you know, I was so caught up in my career that I'm now at a stage where I want to start checking off the bucket list items. So, yeah. If I get this one done in Denali, then all I have left is Antarctica, uh, Mount Vincent in Antarctica, and then obviously the last one would be uh, Everest in, in uh, Nepal. That is amazing. Uh, what kind of... You know what's the what's the emotions that go through as you you know climb to the, one of these peaks and you you look around the landscape about you? What what sense of accomplishment does that bring to you, and how does that help you in your career as well? Well, I mean, just setting if your dreams don't scare you a little bit, then you're not dreaming big enough, right? So that's been a thing for me. Like um, I'm trying to set a, a new land speed record at the Bonneville Salt Flats. It's just been a, another bucket list item. So mm. my dad and I are building a car to to uh, set a new land speed record. It's just something I've always wanted to do. And just to take an objective and to break it down into all the different parts and how you're going to accomplish that and then make it manageable. You can't eat an elephant in one bite. It has to be broken down. You know, and, and I, I can do all kinds of talks on um, how mountaineering is very similar to running a business and that, you know, it's a team effort. It takes uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, training, a lot of work and effort goes into it and breaking it down and making sure that you have all the right, I mean, I could, I could spend half an hour just talking about that with a lot of passion, but yeah, I'm, I, I don't know. I just, I like to dream big and I don't know that I'll climb more mountains after I get Everest down because you've climbed the biggest mountain in the world. What's, what else is there? So sailing around the world, there's just so many things to do in this world that, um, I want to tackle and go after and just the whole challenge of wow that seems daunting and then breaking it down and putting a plan together and then executing against the plan is uh, is where I get and it's in the journey right it's not standing on the top it's in the whole process of getting to the top that is is really where I find the most enjoyment how long if, if, if all goes right climbing Denali how long will it take you from the base to the top it's it's all weather dependent um, they build in five days of bad weather and so you have enough food for an extra five days. So if you get a snowstorm that comes in and socks you in your tents at a high camp for, you know, four or five days, you, that's fine. If it clears up, then you can make a summit bid. But if it goes too much longer than that, you have to go down because you don't have any more food. So, but uh, it's the whole process from the time I you know, leave um, to Alaska and the, before I come back, it's about three weeks. Wow. 
Well, I'm excited it's, to follow you and see, you know, as you, as you summit it and then go on to the other two. It's exciting. So I want to talk a little about education. How do you personally sharpen your skills uh, to stay ahead of the competition? What, what do you like to do? Are there books you read, conferences you go to? What, how do you sharpen your personal skills? Yeah, I start my day every morning with reading, and there's always some aspect of, um, you know, to stay balanced in your life, you have to make sure that you're taking care of your body, your physical, your mental, and your, your career, as well as your relationships with your family and then your business. And so um, I always make sure that every day I'm re- doing some type of reading that um, is sharpening the saw. So I've got, you know, entire bookshelves, yeah. um, and this isn't all of them by far, but I just love to read. And a lot of times I do books on tapes, audio books. And um, when I go hiking, I mean, I've got an audio book in and it's, it's almost always something that's helping me in my life. And, and many times it's career related as well. That's great. Uh, Technology-wise, you can't say a cell phone, but is there any type of technology, whether that's hardware or software, that you and your sales could not live without? Well, I mean, I I worked for Siebel Systems back when CRM was new, right? Um, And I got the job at Siebel because I implemented their new mid-market CRM solution when I was running a... um, a plastic surgery software company, and I it, it was controlled to a control freak. I needed CRM to be able to understand what my guys were doing and where our prospects were and where our deals were and our forecast. It gave control to me, and so I became an advocate for CRM in general and then became a reference for Siebel, and then they ended up hiring me, and I ran their mid-market business. But, um, yeah, that so CRM, uh, that's 20 years ago, right? Now, you know, with uh, Sales Navigator and all of the LinkedIn opportunities, I mean, the, the biggest thing I've learned is that I'm the perfect customer for a B2B sales guy to try and get to. They're all trying to get to me. And I've seen all the best efforts that actually get my attention and they break through the noise and, they, and it, it prompts me to respond. And I've seen all the worst. And so I use that as a way to make sure that my team is doing the things that I think are good best practices because it's all about getting through the noise. If you're going to get to a decision maker, you got to get through a lot of noise because you're just being bombarded with emails and voicemails and calls and it's crazy, right? And um, so we adopted like video um, very early on. We started using DemoChimp demos and um, it's now called uh, consensus, but um, using videos has been a way to get through the clutter because people tend to click on a video and will look at that versus nobody reads a white paper. I don't know why anybody would ever send out a white paper unless you're selling to you know to, to nerds. But the, the bottom line is, how are you going to get somebody to actually take the time to look at your product and look at what your solution can be? So it's just the different ways that we can get any type of uh, mind share from a potential client. So I love that you brought up video as one of kind of those nuggets, uh, if you will, of you know great way to break down the noise. Any any other insight that you would share of ways to get an executive's attention like your own? Well, this is going to sound crazy, but we had a rep that just started doing personal letters, writing letters and mailing them, and she was getting phenomenal response from these letters she wrote because nobody does that anymore. It's just all an, an email blast and. And um, in my perspective, anybody that can make me laugh or can make it personal to me, um, I'm going to give a shot to, right? So it's the ones that are just marketing speak and blah, 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 blah. You know, the value proposition of, you know, that kind of stuff. I just delete, 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 you know. 
But anybody that can make me laugh, I said, all right, this is this is somebody I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna spend some time on. The videos are something we all consume now today. You know, YouTube, we consume everything on video. At least I do. And so when I see a personalized video with a with a play button, and it's got somebody saying, "Hey, Don Cash, this is not spam." I mean, come on, I have to I have to play that right, and it gets my attention and, and things like that. But there's a lot of technologies now for getting through the, the noise. There's also technologies that help just you know standardize the process because it takes on average anywhere from eight to ten. Um, outreaches. outreaches before you can get a hold of somebody. So we use um, SendBloom as a technology that we just implemented that allows us to do campaigns like marketing does and sending out emails and then a phone mail and then the different 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 ways they do their touches for an outbound marketing campaign. It's the same way we're doing it for our outbound um, sales development and and then our, even our sales reps are building their their. Um, because I have a group of both setters and closers, so the, the sales development folks that are just getting leads for the field, and then I've got a group of inside sales reps that are closing deals as well. But they still have to all build pipeline. That's their, their job. And so SendBloom is just a technology that allows us to make sure that we're getting the appropriate touches with a good um, pre-recorded uh, voicemail. So, you know, and then you just, the first part of your day is just boom, 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 going through these different campaigns. And there's just a uh, success in numbers to some degree, and, and if you set them up right. But um, that's been a really good technology. But we have, it, it's funny because you find somebody that has a lot of success in sending out emails, right? And somebody that has a lot of success just dialing for dollars and calling people. You have some people that have really good rifle uh, approach versus a shotgun approach to getting on LinkedIn and really understanding who that person is and what motivates them and then you get a very direct personalized message and their conversion rates and their, their success rates are high. So however people are finding success, you encourage that and you try to share with people of what somebody else is doing and then they kind of find their own groove um, and you just help facilitate that. But for me to say there's only one way to get, you know, to build pipeline, there's not. There's a lot of different ways you can do it. I completely agree. One, uh, I want to throw a question out here too, just there's a lot of discussion right now going on in the blogosphere, on, on LinkedIn and whatnot about AI and whether or not that is going to, down the road, replace the sales representative. What do you think? Do you think that that's actually going to happen? Do you think there's value in having a personal touch? Well, to some degree, it already is happening because you know we find that when we get um, an inbound uh, opportunity to follow up on, it's because somebody's gone to our website, they've done the research. In fact, they've probably done 70% of their research before they even talk to you. And so when you're getting an inbound, you need to be aware that they've done most of this online. So I know that's not AI specific, but we're, we're now in a, in a situation where they don't have to talk to somebody live. They can get a lot of their evaluation. So understanding how people consume information and make decisions and trying to use technology to help facilitate that and you know facilitate that process is something that's going to happen, but at the end of the day, a computer can't ask somebody to for the deal. You know, it still takes somebody to close the deal. That's why I love the hunters and closers concept because I don't see that going away. Somebody, you know, everybody wants to be a sales rep on commission day, but nobody wants to be a sales rep when it comes down to the you know the asking for the deal, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Closing the deal. Exactly right. Yeah, that's great. Well, last question. If you were to you know, meet someone on the street and that was interested in getting into sales, whether they're a young you know, college uh, individual or they're trying to look at switching careers, would you recommend it? Oh, highly. 
and why? Highly. Well, what other career can you get into where you have a direct uh, ability to impact your compensation? I mean, any other position, you're waiting to see if you're going to get an annual bonus or not, if you're going to get a small increase in merit pay. Um, sales rep, you just sell more and you can have a direct impact in your commission check. I always loved that. That's My dad, even when I was a little kid, he was in sales and marketing. He said, see all those big homes on the, house, on the hill there, Don? You know, that's doctors, lawyers, and sales guys. And, you know, that always resonated with me because I want to have an ability to impact my income and not just wait for the annual review and do I get a small merit increase. Um, I want to be able to know that I can work now and next month's commission check reflect my hard work and efforts. So I love sales. And if you love your product, that's the key, right? I can't sell something I don't believe in. If you love your product... You're just enthusiastic about wanting to share how this product can save you money, make you money, or make your job e- easier, right? It's just very simple. And, you know, it's like I compare it to going to a good movie or a good restaurant. You want to share it with everybody you know. That was awesome movie. And you tell everybody, if you've got an awesome product that you know is going to change somebody's life in the way that they work and they... Uh, and you can help, you know, make, help the company make money or save money or make their jobs easier. Who can't talk about that all day long, right? Yeah. But if I had a if I had a product that didn't have that and was all foo foo, I couldn't do it. I would I would wilt completely. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you taking time with us, Don. It's been very insightful. Love you know looking into what you've done and accomplished, and we learned a lot today. So thank you very much for being uh, and you spending bet. time with us. Yeah. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Hunters and Closers podcast. Join us for more great learnings on LinkedIn, huntersandclosers.com, and our YouTube channel.